foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. It's the Move Your DNA podcast with Katie Bowman. I'm Katie Bowman, author of Move Your DNA and a bunch of other books about movement. This podcast is about how movement works on the cellular level, how to change your position as you move and why you might want to, and how movement works in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome. Are you ready to get moving? Friends, I'm very excited. This is my 93rd podcast episode, but it's the first time I'll be doing an interview. And it's also the first episode that is sponsored. As I mentioned at the start of the last show, I reached out to a handful of small companies doing big things movement-wise. They all said yes, they'd like to be a part of this dynamic collective. So this podcast is now supported by this collective of small companies working hard to help you change your movement environment from what you put on your feet to how you take a seat at both home or in the office. Are you ready? Soft star shoes, my Mayu outdoor rain boots, unshoes, footwear, which makes minimal sandals, earth runners, minimal sandals, and Ven design. I've been recommending these companies to my readers for years, to be clear, without any business arrangement, because I believe in their products and their business approaches. My family and I all wear these brands, use this dynamic furniture, and our feet and bodies are healthier for it. All of these companies support each show and will be sponsoring practical movement tips each show. You can find websites and more about Venn Design, Soft Stars, My Mayu, Unshoes, and Earthrunners in the show notes. The Collective is sponsoring listener questions, and this one is perfect for today's episode. Dear Katie, my family is planning a multi-day backpacking trip this summer over moderately rough terrain. I have been wearing minimalist shoes for a couple of years, mostly sneakers. I don't want to end up with a foot injury on the trail from having too much or too little support. What kind of shoes do you backpack in 
Not your daily hikes, but real backpacking. Okay, I like this question. Before I get into brands, I think that this is the more important piece. I personally transitioned to minimal shoes over years, so around four or five, to feel comfortable with super minimal shoes when I was backpacking or when I am backpacking, which is carrying 30 to 70 pounds long distance. Being a kid carrying family really helped because we were not only wearing minimal shoes, we were walking daily in them three to five miles while carrying 20 to 30 pounds. So that's a significant amount of training. So you have to remember the ecology of it all. It's not just what you put on your feet. It's it's how you move in them, all of it, what you're walking upon, as well as I was simultaneously doing lots of corrective exercises. So everything that I recommend in my books about transitioning to minimal shoes, I was also doing. So that's a lot more than just putting something on my feet. Even though you've been wearing minimal shoes, you do need to choose wisely for this trip because you're adding weight, adding distance, and adding new terrain that your feet are not used to. So you might actually want to step up in external support as the loads you're going to be introducing are much different than what your feet are used to. So you can hike in something that's moderately supportive, but pack a minimal sandal for the rest of the time, you know, because it's not all hiking. It's, you know, when you're backpacking, you're also lots of times, you know, certainly setting up camp and then you're just like walking around maybe as you're taking breaks. So so you can have uh, two pairs of shoes to swap between. And then minimal shoes are so great because you can, (laughs) they're light, so you can almost just hang them on the outside of your pack and you're not really taking that much more, more weight. If your goal is to be in minimal shoes versus doing the hike itself, then just ramp up your training way ahead of time. So that means that you're going to take your minimally shod feet onto more complex terrain. You're going to be adding lots of weight and carrying things as well as distance, going longer distances that are maybe more like what you would be doing on a backpack trip. So like if you've worn minimal shoes, let's say for years, but the longest walk that you've ever taken in them is five miles, and you might want to plan a couple of 10 mile or 15 mile walks in them because you might find that at that load, which includes the duration and the frequency that you're you're not adapted to them as much as you think you are. Remember that frequency is is maybe the most important variable. And that goes for terrain exposure, distance, or duration, depending on how you think about it time-wise or distance-wise, and then as well as the complexity of the terrain itself. So think about all of that. Like I suggested, bring a pair of backup footwear. Now, as far as for what I wear, it depends on the season, the terrain, and the weather. And I post regularly on social media, like what I'm taking and why and where I'm going to kind of maybe help you see the formula that I use. But in general, last summer I wore, I guess, unshoes and earth runners almost exclusively and bare feet the rest of the time. I did one backpacking trip with Vibrams and unshoes. So Vibrams a lot of times will be my more supportive shoe, where unshoes would be my my minimal, thinner, uh, more flexible. But it does again, it depends on its dryness. Like I won't take Vibrams in the wet because they don't work very well. My husband prefers to backpack barefoot when the complexity is not very much and it's also dry. If we add complexity, he'll add Vibrams. With greater complexity, though, and if there's any wet, he wears Runamux from Softstar, and he prefers the thicker sole. I think it's like three or four millimeters 
because he appreciates the traction. So anyway, I hope this helps. And again, thank you to The Collective for sponsoring these questions. I'll do another question here in a bit. Okay, without further ado, I'm very excited to welcome Jason Lewis, the first guest on the new Move Your DNA podcast. Jason is the first human to circumnavigate the earth using only the power of his body. So talk about movement, right? He is the award-winning author of the Explorer Trilogy, documenting his journey. He's also a speaker and sustainability advocate. And he wrote the foreword to my book, Move Your DNA, for which I am grateful. Jason, many, many thanks for being my first guest. Oh, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, before we get started, I just have this funny story. I do a lot of interviews. You probably do, too. But when I was initially setting off to do some publicity for Move Your DNA, again, for which you wrote the foreword, I got this question, and the question was, Katie Bowman, like, how old were you when you set off to circumnavigate <laughs> the globe and conducted this interview right. like it was like it was me who had done this physical feat? And I was like, yeah, that wasn't me. That was Jason Lewis who wrote the foreword for Move Your DNA. So, again, I think that is one of the most hilarious <laughs> interview questions I've ever received, and I just wanted to share with that that with you because i'm sure you can relate to something like that oh no i uh, there is a big difference between journalists who uh who do their research and and unfortunately the vast majority these these days because they don't have the time or or whatever everyone's so busy uh they very often just read off a, a cheat sheet like a press release and they don't and they're like so uh, what have you done i'm like okay well let's so it's i i totally understand how that could have happened so someone didn't do their research properly Okay, Jason, you are the first in a series of interviews that I'm doing with people who are changing the world by moving in a particular way. They don't always see the movement and what they do, but I see everything kind of in terms of, of movement. So I thought I would have people on to, to talk about not only what they were doing, but the movements by which they were doing it. So I'm trying to help others. I'm trying to help myself and others break out of a sedentary culture. You have done a tremendous thing using your body to go around the globe. So I want to ask first, have you always been an exploring adventure, kind of complete large physical feats archetype? And was your physical prowess the reason you set off to move your body around the planet. I just have to say that again, like around the planet. Like, did you do this because you were already physically dynamic? So um, that's a really great question because I, I, I mean, some of your listeners might be relieved to know that I, I was not an expert at all I think the thing that, because it wasn't my idea either to do this circumnavigation by human power. It was actually a friend of mine from college. And uh, and he came up with the idea and he pitched me. He said, hey, you know, would you fancy going along? And one of, one of, one of my first questions was, well, neither, is, neither of us have done anything like this before. And he said, well, if you can, if you can walk in a straight line and if you can pedal a bicycle, then you, then anybody could do a journey like this. And I think it was that 
uh, innate simplicity that appealed to me, that you didn't have to be an expert to do a journey like this, or even a portion of a journey like this. And, you know, there are lots of adventurous things that people do these days that are extreme. And even I, I mean, my nephews, for example, they're, they're into these endurance running and they do iron man and, and, and one of them's just like run a hundred miles. And I just can't even, I can't even get my head around doing something like that. But what Steve and I did was very doable to, by just anybody, you know, riding a bicycle, like you said, maybe our first day out from London, when we had been so busy preparing for this journey that we hadn't even had time to get fit. The first day, I think, was, you know, we made it like 50 miles. And that seemed like an enormous day. And then we had the boat uh, that we pedaled across the Atlantic, the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. And the first day out from Portugal, I remember it was just like, oh, my, how are we going to do this? Um, and we just did sort of 20, 30 miles. And, and that gradually, of course, became you know, 40, 50, 60 miles as we built up our fitness. But the point I'm making and the point that I think you're trying to uh, tease out is that actually, if you can just start, if you can just begin, the idea of, for example, pedaling across an ocean or, or even riding your bike uh, from one side of the continent or even your state to the other can be very, the idea of it can be very intimidating and almost too much. But if you can just say, you know what, I'm just going to begin and I'll just do a little bit. And if you just take little chunks, then before you know it, you're doing it. And before you know it, you've done it. Um, so that, I suppose, you know, if there's anything that I can share, it's, it's that you don't have to be, you know, if you want to get more movement in your life and you want to do something a little bit bigger uh, other than what you can squeeze into your average workday, then the key thing is just to begin, is to start something and, uh, and, and, and then you'll find out and then you'll find you're actually doing it and, and you'll become really good at it after a while. Oh, I like that answer because I think that there is a belief that big movement feats are done by those that are already fit or capable rather than remembering or paying attention to the idea that movement is the conduit to more movement that if you want to do a big feat you just you have to do it and that the big feet like the borders around a big feat can also include the training for that feat but before i go any further how many miles made up your journey the total mileage around the planet was 46,505 miles I probably should have led with that because that number is just, it's staggering. I thought my 20 mile monthly walk was big, but that number is staggering. And one interesting thing in your, in your books, at least to me, was the, how you chose how you were going to get yourself around the planet. So I think I would have my my assumption would have been that you you know you walked over the earth or or cycled and then you rode or paddled in the water but as someone explained to you the problem with rowing or paddling using your arms essentially to get across the the watery portions of the planet would have 
landed you on land with really strong arms, but legs that couldn't, that, that, that wouldn't be really physically adapted to all of that movement that you essentially would have weaker legs by the time you landed on, on land. And so you retrofitted your, your boat to have pedals so that you could basically create that pedaling strength, whether you are, you could capitalize on the pedaling strength, whether you're on the land or in the water. Is that right? That, that is correct. And that's the reason why uh, the original designer of the boat said, you know what, you're going to be riding your bikes on land. When you get to the edge of a landmass, let's use your legs to then power the boat across the oceans rather than your arms. So correct. That's, that's exactly right. I like how the law of specificity is kind of called out over and over in your book, whether or not mm-hmm. you use those words. When I when I read your adventures, I'm really seeing that I'm, I'm seeing you embody a lot of the laws that we read about in exercise science. Mm. Theoretically, we read the theory and here you are, mm-hmm. you know, you've you've been peddling across the ocean for weeks. And then there's a great circumstance in a book where you have to get on a larger vessel in the sea only to find that your legs have kind of lost their capability for walking. You still have strong legs yeah. as long as you're pedaling, but walking, which is a completely different motion, becomes challenging. I love that kind of stuff. Anyone who is a, I would say like a movement nerd or a mechanics or exercise science nerd is going to enjoy reading the book just to see someone living tremendous amounts of movement. Um, But speaking of movement, you know, you're talking about your nephews pursuing races. They're they're pursuing physical events for the physicality of it. But as you've expressed in your books, the reason that you set off wasn't necessarily to do a large physical feat. You were using movement to facilitate a different a different element of of taking your body around the around the world so can you talk a little bit about that so it was primarily i think uh choosing human power human movement uh was was a very conscious decision uh, on both our parts um as a, as a way for us to really go out and connect with the world, with uh, with different environments, uh, and also different people that we wouldn't have otherwise got to meet at a at a grassroots organic level if we had been riding in a car or in a train or even on a motorcycle. I mean, the more mechanized uh, the transport that we use, the less connection we have with the landscapes that we travel through and the people that we might meet in those landscapes. And I think. We left in the mid '90s, and and now you know human power. There's been quite a, a resurgence, I guess, in in human powered feats, people doing human powered activities, which is great. But at that time, there were, there really wasn't uh, many people doing these. In fact, there wasn't even. I remember there was there was big contention because we called it uh, initially manpower, the first manpowered trip around the world and uh, because human powered the word human the term human power didn't really exist um and people said well manpower that sounds very politically incorrect so that's why we ended up calling it human power but um it was a way f- the journey the choice of human power in addition to uh 
uh, being a cheap form of transport, that's always good, um, also was a way for us to be able to connect at a very organic level with people and landscapes. And in our minds, that was a way to really see the world and to really understand the world and understand these different environments, be it the ocean or be it the middle of the desert in Australia or the mountains of Tibet. Um, you know, you got to get off, got to get out of the motorized vehicle, get out from behind that pane of glass to really understand how the world works. And that's what we were aiming for. That really resonates with me because I've walked and driven the same 20 mile stretch. And I would say that the knowledge that I am gathering from both of those experiences differs radically. And most of us are so are moving so quickly through where we actually live, like the area, our landscape, the the area, the city, the town surrounding where we spend the bulk of our time mm-hmm. and the knowledge that we have of it relates to how we interact with it in our cars and homes. So definitely, I I have personally experienced the value of recognizing all of the things that I can learn and thus kind of embody about my own habitat when I move through it on my own on my own power. You can think about it as like just kind of removing walls, if you will. Mm-hmm. So here's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on this podcast is because I, I really, I think that some people set out for physical feats for the sheer physical, physical challenge of it, that that's their, their sole motivation or their primary motivation. And then there's other reasons that we set out as you're talking about connecting with people, connecting with landscapes, getting the the rate of the flow of land by your face to some natural level. But I'm really intrigued with this other idea that large physical feats, human-powered physical feats, might in fact be a biological imperative for some of us, if not all of us, on, on some scalable level. Obviously, humans got to where they are now because of this regular setting off to move long distances. And so I I think of so many people feeding back to say, oh, when I finally went barefoot, like I felt like this was what my feet were supposed to do, but you didn't know it until you transitioned and experienced it, that maybe these longer journeys within us are are actually kind of like it's a genetic impulse to do it. And so one of the data points that I have is this information that I just got from you, which is you and your wife are about to set off again. So I want to talk about that. Yeah. So I basically want to go back to um, back to uh, points on my circumnavigation journey, uh, revisit communities uh, that live in very remote parts of the world, either because they're, uh, these people are isolated by water or by desert or by uh, by ice, by mountain ranges. And because these people are so isolated, they, they by nature, live sustainably. They, they live within finite means. And I want to go back with Tammy to, uh, to understand how it is that these people live and, uh, you know, without the sort of the, the surrounding influence of globalization. Because I think this, this knowledge... Um, of self-sufficiency is something that we've lost in the West, living better with less. But it will involve uh, pedaling 
my boat, the same boat that I used on the circumnavigation, it will involve pedaling Moksher, is the name of the boat, uh, from the Sonman Islands to this little remote uh, island in, in the South Pacific. It's about 460 miles. So using uh, human power to reach this location is a very important part of that expedition. How long does it take to pedal 460 miles? So we do about, I mean, we could probably do it in about uh, two weeks, um, would be my guess, about two, two and a half, three weeks. So is it nonstop? Pretty much, yeah. What are the logistics involved in a trip like this? There's no land in between. So, and and the boat is so so small and utilitarian. There's only one position for someone to sleep at any one time. So there's really an incentive for someone to be awake pedaling, even at even at night. So we we typically do three hour pedal shifts in the day, four hour pedal shifts at night. And the added advantage of that is someone is always awake and looking out for ships that might otherwise run us down. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's very much mo- it's centered around the pedals, and and just to sort of touch upon the last point you made, um, one of the one of the I suppose one of the selling points for me of using uh, pedal power in this case a pedal powered boat to reach this location is that the repetition of pedaling becomes a me- like a meditation. And it, it always allows, on my previous journeys, it's allowed me to prepare, or rather it's allowed me to really, it's like walking sometimes when you need to be able to think about something or when I need to mm-hmm. be able to really uh, um, think through something that might be troubling me, a, 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 like a problem, very often just walking will allow my sort of my body to be engaged in this activity and allow my mind to to really creatively free think and and pedaling the boat is like that it becomes meditative um it it allow, it, it will allow us i think to really prepare for arriving in at this remote location and to really uh get ourselves into a a mindset that i think will be conducive for getting the most out of out of our visit to this little island And here's what I just can't get over. Your partner doesn't swim, right? (laughs) She's laughing. You can hear in the background. I can. Have you ever swum before, Tammy? I'm frightened to death of water. I cannot (laughs) even tell you. I have dreams about drowning. So that's a really good start. (laughs) Um, But I've always, I'm always a great uh, believer in, you know, I I love, I love the idea of people who are non-experts trying something that, uh, that they have not done before. And, and on my circumnavigation, I think I, I had about 25 people who joined me for different legs, and many of them had never been to sea. They had never ridden a bicycle more than a few miles. And these people, I mean, without exception, all you know were terrified to, well, not terrified, but they, were, they had reservations about joining the particular part of the expedition that they were joining. But, but at the end of the month, or three months, or however long their normal lives could allow, um, they came away with just this amazing experience and this amazing kind of faith in their ability to do something which previously they didn't think they could do. And I think that's a really big part of, of doing these expeditions, is trying something that you've never done before. Wow, you're, tie- you're tying up so many pieces. We've got mentoring now, movement land and water-based knowledge. You've got cross-cultural exchange. You've got meditation. 
and you've got now you've got conquering fear. I mean, Tammy can't even swim, so it just keeps bringing up this this thought in me. And I guess I want to ask you: Do you think expeditions, I guess, of any shape or size, are a natural phenomenon? Tammy, what do you think? You're the one who's going to have to. I mean, I, I think could, could is it all right if Tammy answers this question only because absolutely she's you know she's about to do something which maybe some of your listeners might consider themselves you know you're basically in the same boat excuse the pun (laughs) well i think sadly that it should be a natural phenomenon but it's not you know i think many 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 years ago it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary for me to have to get into a lake to get something or to be around water, but I have consciously chosen to be away from water. Even when I lived on the beach, you know, a hundred feet, I could have walked into the ocean, but I was busy. I had work to do. I had things to do. And I think society has become so dependent on things that are supposed to simplify our lives, drive throughs microwavable meals, um, texting, all of these things that are supposed to make our lives more s- simple have made it more complicated and given us less time. And so as terrified as I am, I know that as a human being, we're born in water. We are made up of water. What could be more natural? And so I'm, I'm going to do it because I know that it's good for me as a human and it brings awareness to a good cause. But I won't lie, and I, I am truly frightened. I'm, I'm very frightened of it, but uh, I don't want to be, and I know that it's not human nature to be frightened of water. <laughs> they say do something every day that scares you, so it seems like you just like really scaled that up. You're like, do something for 460 miles that scares you. Okay, I'm going to take a quick interview break to get to our second listener question brought to you, dear listener, by Venn Design. Venn Design hand makes stability ball covers so that you've got these kind of beautiful furniture looking pieces rather than maybe just kind of random brightly colored plastic balls. So it it's, it feels and looks more like furniture. So the reason I like it, the reason I like mine is it's likely to keep being out in your living spaces and not put away or tucked away as some of your exercise equipment might be because it, it matches your decor and they're luxurious looking and and they're beautiful. And then they also make these low floor cushions. I get a lot of questions like, where do you get your floor cushions? How do you make a living space beautiful when it's furniture free? It's not really that it's furniture free. You're just changing what you define as furniture. And that often means the sizes and the shapes of it. You know, basically we're going low with the most of the stuff that we have. So Venn Design makes really beautiful lower floor cushions. So even if you still like the support or the warmth that getting up off the floor provides, you can do it in a way that alters your geometry. And you can find them at venvendesign.co. Okay, here's the question. Katie, it took me reading two of your books on shoes and feet to really get why my body could move more by wearing minimal shoes, or I guess when wearing minimal shoes. But I need an easy explanation to give others. Can you give me a simple sentence or two of why we can move more in minimal footwear? Well, friends, I'm just wordy, plain, and simple. But 
I thought this would be a great time to allow my daughter, when she was four years old, she recorded her explanation of why why minimal shoes. So I thought I would just play that for you. Flexible or not flexible? Not flexible. A little flexible? Yeah. Okay, now let me see yours. Flexible or not flexible? Flexible. So what's the, what, is, what is a flexible shoe good for? What's the point? So, um, one part of, of your foot yeah. is flexible. If you don't have a flexible shoe, um, you can't move the flexible parts on your foot. Oh, all right. Thanks. Okay, friends, I hope that helps. That was circulated pretty wide on social media because I think a lot of people were like, yes, that was exactly the explanation I was looking for. It definitely sounds cuter when you're four years old. But anyway, thank you again to our collective and Ben Design for bringing that simple explanation out in the world. I hope you find it helpful. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so getting back to your journey, y'all can read the book to learn more about wobbly legs and salt and pressure wounds on Jason's testicles. Yes, I just said that. But can even, like putting all that aside, what was the most physically challenging, I guess, portion of this very long journey? Oh, um, probably. Okay, so the most physically demanding section was rollerblading, inline skating across the U.S. Because the biking and the pedal boat, those all involved, you know, mechanics where, of course, it, it's, it's a lot easier. For example, if you're uh, scaling the Rocky Mountains here in Colorado, you have gears to help you get over them on a bicycle. Um, and even kayaking, for example, uh, part, of the, part of the journey was kayaking uh, through the Indonesian chain of islands from Australia to Singapore. Even then, it was that was hard work, but it still wasn't as hard as rollerblading. And I think that was because the rollerblading involved you basically it's just you and the wheels. And if you you know if you hit if I hit a, 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 a an uneven patch of road, which would sometimes last for many miles on the B and C roads, rollerblading through the American South, uh, oh, that would just be an absolute killer on my legs. Um, when I was ended up being hit by a drunk driver here in Colorado and put into hospital with two broken legs. And I remember the surgeon uh, saying when I was first admitted that he thought my, my thigh bones were broken because I had such massive thighs. So this is the only sort of downside, I guess, of these uh, sort of mono forms of exercise, be it rollerblading or biking or kayaking, is you end up with sort of accentuated muscle masses in in those particular areas and and rollerblading had huge legs but in my upper body wasn't really getting much as much exercise so it was it was interesting uh compared to normal life now where i feel like i have a more round sort of well-rounded uh exercise regime uh on the expedition it was sort of it was very specific to a particular body area which i don't think was always that healthy Definitely the diversity and distribution of movement is one of the nice one of the nice benefits is that it can keep you from having, you know, really, really strong developed parts kind of hanging on not as developed parts, which are, you know, the a precursor to their own type of injury. 
Um, but overall, did you feel you were physically improved head to toe or were there some trade-offs, I guess, as far as how your body works now that you can relate back to that period of time or that experience? Yeah, I definitely, I'm, I'm 50 years old now and I start, I started this journey in my late twenties. So I definitely have some tweaks, some, uh, some, I, I have to every day now when, when I'm not, now I'm not doing, for example, I'm not on an expedition. I have to do my core exercises every day, twice a day, just for five, 10 minutes. And uh, every other day I do a yoga routine. I do a stretching routine. If I don't do, if I don't keep to that regimen, then I will find some of these, uh, historic aches and pains, these tweaks starting to creep, starting to kind of come back and haunt me. Um, so, and, and that's, but as far as the overall fitness I felt at the end of the journey, I felt, I mean, I was amazingly fit by the time I finished. I, I think my heart is a pretty, I think my chiropractor said that he's, I have one of the largest hearts he'd ever encountered. I don't I don't think he was referring to my uh, my human, your capacity for loving, yeah, my capacity for loving. But I think you meant the physic, the physiology. So uh, I, I think, I think, and that has definitely that fitness has definitely kind of passed through. Even ten years since completing this journey, uh, I still consider myself a pretty fit person. I have pretty good muscle mass, and I try and keep that. But I have to keep it up now because because of the age I am, and I and I don't want to get up in the morning. And, you know, and be sort of crippled by a hip pain or something. But as long as I keep my little exercises going, then I'm fine. Are you going to train at all before heading off to the island? I No is the answer to that. We used to have this, uh, we used to have this joke that we called it weight training, which was basically waiting until it was time to, to, time to go before we started training. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think this time I might have to do a little bit of training because just being just with age, one has to be a little bit more sensible about these things. Tammy, I don't know. Will you, Tammy? You're getting fit already, aren't you? You're doing. Oh yes, I'm. I'm starting. I'm doing my little routine just because. Unfortunately, I'm like a lot of people, and I spend a good portion of my life on the computer and sitting, and uh, and I'm older than Jason, so I can definitely feel it. Um, but and that's why I'm so grateful for people like you, Katie, that talk about the importance of movement. I need you to just come and live with me for a couple of weeks and hit me with a two by four. Yeah. You and everyone else, except for everyone in my own family. Is there a place to follow this upcoming journey? Is there, is there internet out in the middle of the ocean? Well, yeah, there is. I mean, we'll have a satellite phone and uh, you can send data. Mm. I mean, these days, unfortunately, see, this is the thing traveling, moving has changed quite a lot from the days when we started, when there was no, uh, in, well, there was no internet in the, in the wide open spaces. So you could really be out there in the middle of the ocean or out in a desert and just be, be present, which is, which is one of the beauties of, of, of doing human power or, or, or propelling oneself by natural movement, I think is one of the, one of the nice things is just to not be connected to that device in your hand. Um, but the reality of expeditions these days is you typically, you know, uh, for sponsorship reasons, primarily you have to update a blog occasionally or social media. So yeah, we will have the ability to, to send updates from the field and take photographs, um, and, uh, and that kind of thing. So, 
but it's like I said, it, it's it's a it's a trade off. I always I hate t- taking these gizmos into the field because it does detract from the experience of just being out there. Yeah, the the lack of technology makes me think of this part in your book where you're essentially bobbing around in the ocean, you know, with with no light and and just the the, the noise of the ocean itself and none of the other. Mm, inputs that we've got kind of that we're exposed to on a on a regular basis and it just makes me think of it makes me think of sensory deprivation tanks and this idea that that we have to go to a place you know in a in a room to get a lack of exposure which is you know really kind of just becomes a, a heightened state of awareness once you decrease some of the overload and that that is again something that can be found by stepping out in a way that it's a you know again it's another it's another element of a journey which makes me again think that you know maybe that a lot of us are always trying to take journeys or again getting elements of of journeys and even maybe the desire to get in your car and drive across a state or a country is another way of meeting that that need to just to just travel isn't the right word. It's it's to really be of a different place, maybe. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it, when I had posted a picture of your books and said that I was going to have you on, someone had commented that they had seen you on this documentary of two men they weren't going around the world but they were going across quite a significant portion of land on their motorcycles and so i pulled up the episode and the ju- and so so these guys were doing a huge journey themselves and it wasn't easy i mean like riding your motorcycle for weeks at a time hours and hours a day i mean there's sometimes they're just riding across the desert and you're going Oh my gosh, this is so, this is a journey. You know, this is that same spark. And yeah, they're doing a TV show for it, but there's still, you know, some sort of upwelling of, you know, it would be fun to make a TV show of us doing this hard journey. And, and the scene when they get to you and like, they've been going through, through this desert and struggling and their motorcycles keep falling over and they're so physically exhausted. And then here they go by you and you're on a bicycle and you're riding across the same desert, just using the power of your own legs, pulling all of your own stuff that you'll need. You don't have a giant support film crew. And like, what do you, what was that like? The, the two riders was Hugh McGregor, who's a, who's a Scottish actor originally, but now Obi-Wan is quite well known, quite, quite well known. <laughs> like I said, people remember from the Star Wars movies and his friend, uh, uh, Charlie Borman, but they were making a TV show. And so that was the sort of primary impetus for them riding motorcycles from, I think it was the North of Scotland down to Cape town. So, and, um, uh, like I said, it was, it was a sort of a little bit comical because they, their whole, uh, setup was, was definitely with making a TV show in mind. So they had three support vehicles that of course you didn't see on the show. Um, they had all the gear and, I remember, I remember uh, the, one of the producers jumping out of his truck and looking at the 
the the bottles of water that I had stacked behind my bike seat um, that was all murky and disgusting because it was from the river from the River Nile. And that was the only water that I was able to access at that point in the Sahara Desert. And I would just put a few drops of iodine in to make it drinkable. And and he's like, oh, you're not, well, you're not drinking that stuff, are you? I said, well, it's the only choice I have. And so he ran around the back of one of the vehicles where they had a fridge and pulled out an ice cold bottle of Evian water. And, and I have to say it was pretty good tasting <laughs> water, but, but it just summed up the whole, like you said, the juxtaposition of 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 our two journeys and they were having you know a good time but they 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 were just produ- they were producing entertainment first and foremost but they were also having an adventure you know two guys who are otherwise very busy in the entertainment business um the one thing i would sort of add to what you just mentioned about the merits of human power and this is something i actually talk about quite a lot to uh to schools especially um high schoolers in sort of 10th 11th 12th grade who are looking to go out into the world and choose a career and and that kind of thing is that you know when you when you take a journey uh, out into the world and especially if it's a journey that is using natural power um, as in your own power you become an ambassador um, for your own culture and there were lots of occasions where for example uh, I was about to enter a predominantly Muslim country. Um, Indonesia has the highest, highest proportion of Muslims in the world, or it might've been Syria. This is before the war, mind you, um, other countries where I was a little bit, you know, people were saying, yeah, is it a really good idea to go through there? And when I, when I rode my bike through there or walked through there, whatever it might've been, uh, I found without exception that the people responded to the, the way that I was traveling, which, which if you think about it, also kayaking through the Solomon Islands, kayaking through Indonesia. It's natural movement. Human power is the way that most of the local people still get around these parts of the world um, in dugout canoes in the Solomon Islands. And they just, there was this instant connection with with us in our our kayaks rather than turning up in a great big, uh, you know, cruise ship like tourists normally do. And you're just basically a walking dollar. So the beauty of human power is it really allowed me to connect with people at a, at, on a level that the local people could relate to. Even if we could barely speak each other's language, like in rural China, for example, it, it, it just allowed them also to uh, see that, wow, you know, someone from the UK or from America, I traveled with a lot of Americans as well on my journey. Um, they don't, they're not the same as what we read about in the newspapers and see on the news. They're not a representation of what we think America or Europe is about. And it really allows you to, to uh, reset uh, some of the misconceptions and, and uh, prejudgments that people might have about our own culture because you get to meet them and, and, and they just say, you know what, you're just a normal person too and you're just trying to do your thing and and so I think you become a very powerful ambassador, especially in this world right now where uh, we are so uh, divided. We seem to be so divided. Everyone seems to be pulling into their little corner. Isolationism seems to be the rule of the day. I think it's more important than ever now for people to set off on these journeys. And they don't have to be long journeys. It could just be a few weeks or even a few days. It's important to go out into the world and to connect with people at a base uh, human power level. 
Oh, this makes me think of of gap years. What if a movement journey was the way many people utilized their gap year? What if the travel that so many people set out to do, I've never taken a gap year. I think I started writing a book like the minute I graduated from high school. But for those that did take a gap year, like what if what if travel was the byproduct of a human-powered gap year? Right. So that that you are setting off to not only gather the experience and knowledge of other places and cultures, but to be introduced to the experiment, like the experience of moving yourself, which would be hugely eye-opening for someone coming from a sedentary culture, which is which is most people listening. I think that's a, I think that's a great idea. I think you should we should definitely get funding for somehow for that, <laughs> for, to give scholarships maybe for uh, some young people to or, or older people to to mm. go on a journey like that and to and to share their stories. But there's actually a really interesting uh, project going on right now uh, by a uh, a journalist called Paul Salapek. And he's called uh, Out of Eden, and he's walking from the cradle of civilization in Ethiopia, cradle of human civilization. He's walking. He's, he's retracing the human migratory route through uh, through uh, Central and and uh, Far Asia. I think his intention is to is to actually walk all the way uh, up to the Bering Straits, down through North and South South, South America. Um, to where humans eventually settled, of course, down in the far south of South America. Anyway, really interesting project that I would really uh, highly recommend people checking out. But um, yeah, I mean, he, and he's doing it all by foot, and it's taking a long time. But he, he again, is sort of through his storytelling, and he's a very good writer. Um, uh, uh, and I think it's all going through National Geographic as well. Uh, but through his storytelling, uh, we're really able to, as as uh, you know, sitting in our living rooms able to experience at a, at a sort of a grassroots level these cultures that are very, very, uh, you know, our earliest ancestors would have walked through. So it's, it's a really fascinating journey. I've been following it, and I will go ahead and I'll link to some of the uh, writing in the show notes. So if any of you are interested, you can also read it. Beautiful writing. Mm-hmm. When he's writing, it's beautiful. When he is being interviewed, the way he writes walking it's just gorgeous like i am moved by the way that he's explaining the journey okay so we've talked about these mind-boggling expeditions ways of moving that most listening won't get a chance to do so i want to scale it a little bit to to talk about ways that we can all find a little bit of this expedition within us. So one of the things that I've been doing, I talked about it as on my health recap podcast is doing a monthly 20 miler. And the reason I walk a monthly 20 miler, it's for so many of the reasons that we've covered so far. It's meditative. It connects me to the the people and the plants and the animals, like all the living things, the earth itself. Like it, for me, it is mm. a way of seeing what's going on around me at, at human speed versus the speed of my car. I also walk because I speak a lot about 
thing that things are becoming unwalkable it is the our ability to move on this planet is being reduced to areas that are okay to walk on so you know, I walk 30 to 40 miles on my birthdays that are in the 30s and 40 years. And last year I was hanging off the side of a highway, like with my arms, because there weren't there wasn't any space for my feet because the cars had full priority of this space. So for four miles, mm-hmm. I was walking on a trail hanging off the side of it. And so I walk to stay aware of the fact that things that decisions that I'm part of by the way that I prioritize my time and my money that that the tax a biological tax is less walkability or that I am able to walk but in a in a way that doesn't allow me to get anywhere else I can walk in a loop at some space and so if indeed there is this need to move over the planet to actually go somewhere versus simply move my legs forward and backward and it's an important element of human experience to to preserve so let's think about as everyone listening what can we do to take steps towards towards using our landscape differently keeping in mind that the scale could be whatever we need it to be yeah i think it's an excellent point that you bring which is I mean, for example, in our local community here in Colorado, where, you know, I'm aware of that. I see people, for example, they've got their bikes on the back of their SUV and they're going out to uh, to where the bike trails are outside of town. And and I always think, why don't you just get your bike out of the garage and just ride your bike out to where the trails are or uh, you don't, you know, you don't, okay, so the trails may be more interesting than riding on the highway, fair enough, but it's also walking, like you said. Um, every time, we, Tammy and I, we try and be mindful about getting in our cars automatically because you do, it, it is very easy just to sort of slip into, uh, you know, auto mode where you just think, okay, I've just got to go down to the store and and grab a couple of things. And, you know, our store is maybe, what, a mile and a half away, two miles away maybe. Um, so it's, you know, it's very quick in a car, but it's totally walkable on the bike. It takes about six or seven minutes on a bicycle. And so we do try and sort of, you know, before we get in the car, like, okay, do we really need to get in the car this time? Maybe we could bike. Maybe we could walk. Maybe we could make a little, uh, you know, we could walk together. Maybe we could ride bikes together. Um, because as you alluded to, it's, it's a win-win situation. I mean, Physically, it's good exercise. You're saving money. Uh, you're not you're not belching out carbon from your car. But also, it's a la- it's a way for you to explore your community. And one thing I notice here in the U.S. is that uh, people can live next door to each other, and they rarely have anything to do with each other on the same street. In fact, our street is a good example. We we know the people to the right of us, but we don't really know the people to the left, left of us that well. And the only time I've ever really interacted with them was when I was walking down the road and they just happened to be out there working on their yard. Um, versus communities where uh, we don't, there isn't a lot of, uh, there aren't a lot of, there's not a lot of mechanized transport where people, because they're walking, 
because they're uh, using human power to uh, navigate their way around the community, they they have to deal with people. They have to interact with people. And I think that helps to build a healthier community. And so that's something. And we're not very good at it here in the U.S. because you know we're busy. Everyone's busy. And it's like, oh, my goodness, I don't have time. I'll just jump in the car instead. But it is it is, I think, important to try and just before you automatically step in that automobile, just think, hmm, do I have to do this? Or maybe if I left a little bit earlier, I could actually walk or ride my bike. I think that's a really important discipline to try to get into. One of the reasons I think people load their bike to their SUV and drive out of the areas that they live in is because deep down there is a recognition that this type of experience, you know, being out and away from everyone else, moving through, you know, maybe not completely unaltered, but less altered landscapes is something akin to what you found bobbing in the ocean that, that, that it's not simply the motions it's, it's where and how you're doing the motions that that the landscape itself, the nature of it is a nutrient. It's a separate nutrient. And as more people tune in to this recognition that that they don't only need to move, that they need to move uninterruptedly, that they need to move continuously for consecutive hours sometimes in spaces that are feeding them in some way that we don't yet understand. The more that they can recognize that that's a need, then they can see that their own personal health, if it's a nutrient, you know, if if, that their health is dependent on maybe activism in the environmental sectors, like how that ultimately does relate back to them, Mm -hmm. maybe not because they even were thinking about the environment, like they could still be thinking about themselves that, oh, this is actually, I recognize that this is something that I, that I need to do. And once you dip your toe in, you're going to need to do it usually a lot more often. And so to me, the role that I play and what I'm doing with my books and my work and even this podcast, and especially this podcast series, is to really flesh out movement ecology, to see that Once you recognize that the movement is a necessity, then you begin to look at all of your non-movement or non-exercise time and recognize the relationship between those two things. Like how does what I choose to do when I'm not moving impact the rest of the time when I do want to go move? And for many of us, again, That journey within us is, you know, it's a there's a metaphorical journey in the fact that it takes a long time, I think, to dis to discover the things that we each need. And then there is a larger, you know, there's a scientific journey of of discovering all of the elements at play. And then there is simply putting one foot in front of the other or using your arms in a way that helps you move some some sort of way of starting to to ramp up your human power that no matter the scale you are going to change 
your experience. Absolutely. And it and it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to take 13 years to go around the planet to have an adventure. Uh, you can, it might sound a little bit cliche, but I guarantee you just walk out your door and you go for a walk in, you know, just somewhere where you normally drive. I guarantee you will have, you could have an adventure. It'll be different to driving. I think you touched on a really good point, Katie, about, uh, about these common uh, these common spaces that uh, uh, the commons, as they used to be known, of uh, public, nobody owns these uh, green, these wild spaces. They are uh, essential in ways that we have difficulty articulating, certainly in financial terms. Mm. So right now we're looking at a nation mm. that's looking to shrink some of these public lands. And um, and the reason why is because perhaps some, some uh, financial profit from exploiting them for oil and gas or whatever it may be. But I think that until we put a, a, a financial price, or rather if we, until we put a, a tangible price tag on what these public spaces are worth in terms of our own personal health and well-being, then they're always going to be under threat from uh, other interests looking to encroach upon them. And uh, I think it's really important for people to realize that you know these because more and more people are living on this planet and more and more people want you know houses built out in the middle of nowhere these spaces are under threat and uh, and and it's very very difficult to get them back it's almost impossible to get them back so we really have to you know get away from the whole tree tree hugger mentality of like oh well you know the only people who want to say these spaces are hippies and tree huggers it's it's really they're they're a resource for all of us who work normal lives, who work normal jobs, who have the need to go out there for our lunch break or for our uh, in the evenings or the weekends to to keep ourselves sane and to keep ourselves uh, physically healthy. I I think I think they're almost it's like one they're one of the most valuable assets that we have still remaining on our planet that we that we really have to safeguard. Oh, that was beautifully said and is really a perfect place to end. Just let that hang in the air a little bit. Jason, thank you so much for being my guest, my first guest here on Movie Your DNA. Jason Lewis is the author of three award-winning books for adults. They're fabulous. I've read them all. They are called the Expedition Trilogy. And one of the nice things about books like this, if you're if you're trying to like ramp up your psyche into being out in nature more, moving more, it really does help to to make that what you take in as far as what you're reading. So I find them hugely inspiring. And again, as I mentioned before, Jason's journey is the he he is explaining what it is like to do all of this movement. So for so many people who study movement whose lives are movement, it is mostly in a theoretical sense, meaning I study movement way more hours than I ever move. And it's definitely a ratio that I am working on on changing because I realize that what I want to get to is actually knowing the movement, not knowing the explanations about movement. So, so the series is great. And it's also just been... Um, translated isn't the right word, but adapted into a young adult version. Is that right? Yeah. So the 13 through 18 year old range. Uh, Tammy edited them. Basically, 
the bad language and the bad behavior has been taken out so young people can read them. <laughs> For those of you asking me, like, I'm into this whole moving a ton, natural movement, walking 10 or 20 miles, but my family isn't, these books might be a tool to use to get other people and your family excited about moving. Again, you can find the Expedition Trilogy and the Young Adult versions on Amazon.com. You can find Jason online at JasonExplorer.com and on Twitter at, at @explorerjason. Okay, that is a wrap. For more information, check out NutritiousMovement.com and sign up for my information-packed newsletters. You can learn something new about movement most days by checking in on my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Just search Nutritious Movement. If you have a question for a future episode, email podcast at nutritiousmovement.com. On behalf of everyone at Move Your DNA and Nutritious Movement, thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. Many thanks to Jason for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such. 